Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God's Word? I want to get back to what we were talking about before uh, Bible study was interrupted by a revival and other things, Thanksgiving and what have you. Uh, we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, we had been looking at various characteristics of that fruit. Uh, we said, uh, and, and we continue to make the point, that there is but one fruit of the Spirit, even though it is described uh, using many different uh, uh, adjectives, uh, there is but one fruit of the Spirit, and that fruit of the Spirit is love. But uh, in addition to what is said about love, uh, Paul uses other uh, uh, descriptions. Going back to Galatians chapter 5, uh, just to bring us back up to speed, he talks about starting with verse 19. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your way, your own way, all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be love, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly I'm sorry, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way. He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. This is the message version of, of that list of things that we commonly call the fruit of the Spirit. And when he talks about a godly affection, that's love. And that's what the fruit of the Spirit really is. It is love. Everything else 
falls in as a descriptive, an adjective to that main thing, love. And we have been lifting up various uh, descriptives and making them uh, the emphasis of this Bible study. We've talked about uh, forgiveness, where everybody got real quiet and walked out with your head down because you don't like to forgive nobody. Amen. Uh, and then we talked about peace, and y'all felt a little bit better. I hope that you'll feel better about today's descriptive. We want to talk about service and servanthood. Service and servanthood. You can't be a Christian if you're not willing to serve. And that service can't be a grudging service. It can't be a, a, a service where you say, well, I guess I got to do it. No, service ought to come from the heart, a heart that has been converted to Christ. In ancient Hebrew scripture, the term servant is used chiefly as a title of the Messiah. We're in Advent season now. Advent season started officially on this past Sunday, and we'll continue through uh, the fourth Sunday of this month, uh, December 23rd. Advent is about the coming of Messiah, and all throughout Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 42, in Isaiah chapter 49, in Isaiah chapter 50, in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, he uses the term servant as a title for the coming Messiah. That's who the Messiah will be. The Messiah will be one who serves. And what does Jesus say about himself when he comes? He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for Many And therefore, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, and Jesus describes himself as a servant, then how can we describe ourselves? How can we see ourselves as being anything less than what Jesus says he is? So if Jesus says that service and servanthood is key to, to being evidentiary of living a life that is filled by and consumed by the Holy Spirit, then our lives need to be lives of service. What does Christian service look like? I'm glad you asked. That was a good question. <laughs> Christian servants are unselfish. Turning your Bibles for just a minute to Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> and look at verse 34. Jesus said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me, and I will show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice. Do you see that? 
Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to saving yourself, your true self. Now, I just read that from the message version. Y'all know this verse better from the King James Version. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If we are to be servants of Christ, that service begins with unselfishness. Selfishness is the antithesis of Christianity. Ain't no such thing as a selfish Christian. They're selfish church folk. Amen. But you can't be selfish and be a Christian at the same time. You can't be consumed by self and by the things of self and call yourselves Christians. Because every example of Jesus that we have is of one who gave of himself for the benefit of others. Even on the night before his crucifixion, as he stretched out on the ground with sweat like great drops of blood falling from his brow, he says to, to, to God, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Translation, I ain't done nothing to die for. That, that there ought to be a, a better way. There ought to be a simpler way. There ought to be a less painful way, a less humiliating way for me to accomplish your will than to have to go through the sufferings and the humiliation of death when I haven't done anything wrong. Nevertheless, not what I want, not my will, but your will be done. That was Jesus' attitude. How can you have a different one and say that you are following him? One characteristic of servanthood is unselfishness. A second characteristic of servanthood is humility. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians. Chapter 2. Verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, become, became human. Having the privileges of deity and, I'm sorry, having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, there's that word selfless again, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Jesus humbled 
himself. Humbled himself before his heavenly father, humbled himself to his divine assignment and recognized the priority of the assignment to his own personal preferences. If we are to be servants of Christ and if we are to reflect the fact that the Holy Spirit guides us in what we do, then we have to humble ourselves first to God and then to the assignment that the Lord has given to us. Which means that there will come times when what the Lord asks us to do runs contrary to what we want to do. And in those cases, we can't take a day off. We can't say, Lord, I'll come back tomorrow. It's my responsibility to do it right now. And sometimes that means putting ourselves in positions where others can lord themselves over us. And nobody likes that. You don't like it. I don't like it. But it's not about us. Do you remember, again, referring to the night before his crucifixion, Jesus in the upper room, the guest of honor at the, at the table, gets up and ties an apron around himself and grabs a bucket of water and goes around and starts washing feet. And the disciples don't know what to do. They, they're looking at each other and they're looking at him like he's lost his mind. But he goes from one person to the next to the next washing feet. Why are they looking at him crazy? Because that's not the job of the master. That's the job of the servant of the house. But the servant of the house didn't do the job. And so Jesus says the job needs to be done. There is significance in that. Jesus came into the world to do a job that the servants didn't do. The whole, the whole point of Jesus having to come into the world in the first place is the fact that the servants didn't do the job that they were assigned to do. Abraham had a job to do, but Abraham lied. Not once, but twice. Jacob had a job to do. Jacob didn't do the job because Jacob was a scoundrel who put himself ahead of everything and everybody else. Moses had a job to do, but Moses lost his temper and struck a rock when God told him to talk to a rock. David had a job to do, but David looked at a woman and said, I want her and I'm gonna do everything in my power to have her. And he lost the right to do his job. Solomon looked at all kinds of women, 700 wives and 300 concubines. He couldn't do his job. And he started setting up idols to, to other gods in the same place where, where, where he had set up the, the, the temple to the living God. The reason why Jesus had to come was because the servants didn't do their job. One after another after another had the opportunity and one after another after another failed in the assignment so that the guest of honor said, if nobody else is going to do it, I'll do it. And when he gets to Peter, Peter's like, no, no, Jesus, you ain't going to wash my feet. And Jesus says to Peter, if I can't wash your feet, 
then you have no part in me. Now, now what he was really saying is, if you won't let me perform the service that I was called to do, then you can't be a part of what I have been sent to accomplish. And Peter said, in that case, don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. And that should be our attitude as well. We should want Jesus, we, we should want to be so much a part of what Jesus has come to do that, 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 that he consumes everything there is about us, that, that, that he covers us completely in the washing that he provides. But for that to happen, Jesus had to humble himself. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, as his church, we too must humble ourselves. We have been put here to serve. And part of service is learning how to humble ourselves. It's important for us to recognize if we're talking about service and servanthood as a fruit of the Spirit, then it cannot be an activity. It has to be an attitude. See, when it's an activity, then the moment the activity is over, you go back to doing what you were doing before. But if it's an attitude, then, 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 then it becomes a part of who you are. God is tired. Here I am speaking for God. Thank you, Lord. God gets tired of folk who just want to be involved in activities but don't have a servant's attitude. And you can tell the difference between folk who are just involved in activities and folk who have an attitude. There is a genuineness. And, and, and when you see the genuine article, when you see the real thing, it stands out from the superficial professors. Those who say that they are something that in fact they are not. Some folk can't wait till their activity is over. And then you don't see them again until it's time for their activity again. But servants are here all the time. Activity folk come just on Lord's Supper Sunday. Activity folk come when, when, when it's time for their ministry to serve, for their choir to sing, or for their ushers to, to usher. But attitude people are here. Activity people don't wake up and see rain and say, I ain't going today. Am I on your street yet? <laughs> attitude people come rain or shine. Do you know God blesses you rain or shine? Yeah. You know God blesses you cold or hot? Yeah. And that's a good thing because in Louisiana it's cold one day and hot the next. You know God blesses you cold or hot. You know God blesses you light or dark. God blesses you when the sun is shining. God blesses you when it's cloudy. So how come you get to decide when, when, when you're going to be a part of God's work? The, 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 the ministry that you said, nobody made you become members of the church. You made that decision. You sing, I'm on the battlefield for my Lord, and I promised him 
that I would serve him till I die. That's your promise. I sure hope it don't rain. Because service gets slack when it rains. It's the difference between an activity and an attitude. God wants an attitude. Christ expects an attitude of service. Without an attitude of service in one's heart, then our behavior is of little worth. So, with that in mind, I invite your attention to Mark chapter 10. I want you to look at verses 35 through 45. I'm reading from the message version. James and John, Zebedee's sons, came up to him, him being Jesus. Teacher, we have something we want you to do for us. They know it started off wrong. I'm sorry, that's my editorial comment, but they know it started off wrong. Teacher, we have something we want you to do for us. What is it? I'll see what I can do. Arrange it, they said, so that we will be awarded the highest places of honor in your glory. One of us at your right, the other at your left. Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you capable of drinking the cup I drink, of being baptized in the baptism I'm about to be plunged into? Sure, they said. Why not? Jesus said, come to think of it, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized in my baptism. But, to, but as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. There are other arrangements for that. When the other ten heard of this conversation, they lost their tempers with James and John. Jesus got them together to settle things down. You've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, he said. And when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. Who are James and John? James and John represent two-thirds of Jesus' inner circle. Jesus had 12 disciples that are listed as those that went with him throughout his ministry. But within that 12, he had three that were closer to him than the others, three that he carried with him everywhere he went. And the three saw things that the other nine did not see. For example, when Jesus went up on the mountain of transfiguration, he didn't carry all 12 disciples with him. He, he carried Peter, James, 
and John and left the other nine waiting for them down below. When Jesus goes into uh, the house of Jairus and, and the daughter is dead, he doesn't carry all 12 into the house. He carries Peter, James, and John. When Jesus goes into the garden and gets ready to, to pray in preparation for what's about to come, he carries all 12 with him into the garden, but then he carries Peter, James, and John farther into the garden with him. And finally, he separates himself from them. But his instruction to them is stay here and pray while I go over there and pray. There were things that Peter, James, and John did not see, did not witness, that, that the others did not witness that the three of them saw. They were a part of his inner circle. So it has to strike you as strange that two of the three were the ones who come and ask this question. But then when you think about it, maybe it's not that strange at all. After all, we are part of the inner circle. And as part of the inner circle, we just believe that certain things ought to be a part of us, that, that, that the others don't have anything to do with. It's a wonderful thing to know that you have been called out by the Lord. It's a wonderful thing to have a relationship with God, to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing to feel the intimate closeness, the intimate fellowship of a relationship with Jesus Christ. But please don't get it twisted. Please don't think that because the Lord has called you out and because the Lord has set you apart and because you have a level of intimacy with him that is so wonderful and experienced to have that somehow or other you become privy to things or, or, or it becomes the right that you have certain things that others cannot and should not have. They started off wrong. This is what we want you to do for us. And, and, and I like Mark's version of this because the other version uh, has the mama doing it. Their mama came, came to, to Jesus and said, this is what I want you to do for my boys. Uh, now, now I, I just tend to believe that the boys did this themselves. It's the attitude that many of us have. Not, Lord, what can I do for you? But, Lord, this is what I want you to do for me. When you pray, isn't your prayer primarily, Lord, this is what I want you to do for me? If you can't say amen, say out. Go ahead, say it, say it, say it, say it. You ain't even say it. That's all right. They say it out. They just say it real soft. That, 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 that's primarily how we pray. Most holy, all wise, eternal God, our heavenly Father, we get all of that out of the way. And then we start down this list of stuff. Do this, do that, do the other. Bless this, bless that, bless the other. When's the last time you spent a paragraph in your prayer saying to the Lord, this is what I want to do for you? What you doing? Going through your prayer in your mind, trying to come up with. There's not even a, there's not even, I, I, I said a paragraph. Is there a sentence in your prayer? Where, 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 where you make a commitment to the Lord, this is what I want to do for you? I've told you before, 
it would be a wonderful thing if you spent some time in your prayer life not praying, asking for anything, but simply thanking God for what he's already done. What, what, what is the song we sing? Count your blessings. Name them one by one. If you really spent the time counting your blessings, that would take up your entire prayer time. Well, in addition to saying thank you for what you've already done, I encourage you, I urge you, I challenge you to spend some of your prayer time telling the Lord, this is what I want to do for you. And if you have to attach a solicitation with that, attach this solicitation. Open the door to make it possible for me to do this for you. When Paul was confronted by Jesus on the Damascus Road and knocked down, and Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you persecute. Paul doesn't say, this is what I want you to do for me. Paul says, what would you have me to do? And that should be our prayer as well. But these boys start off with the selfishness. This is what we want you to do for us. And they're conspiratorial about it. This ain't a wide open conversation that includes all the others. They got Jesus off to himself. And, and, and look at the language that, that's written here. Arrange it. Did you see that? You know what arrange means? Fix it. You know what fix it means? Get it together. Set it up. This is conspiratorial language. Lord, I, I, I really don't care about nobody else. We're only interested in us. I imagine, not in the scripture, but I, I, I imagine that if Jesus had said yes, the next thing would have been a fight between James and John about who was going to sit on the right. And who was going to sit on the left? Because traditionally, the right hand is considered to be the stronger hand. So if you sit on the right hand, you're considered to be the stronger person. So I can imagine that after they got him to arrange the fact that they were the ones sitting on the right and the left, then they would have been fighting with each other about who was sitting on the right and who was sitting on the left. Because their hearts and their minds were only concerned about themselves. Arrange it so. Fix it so. Set it up so that everybody knows that when you come into your kingdom, this is the spots, these are the spots that are reserved for the two of us. Bad attitude. Arrange it so that we will be awarded the highest places of honor. Is that what servants should be looking for? The highest places of honor? Not, I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind if he said arrange it, if after arrange it, he would have said arrange it so that we have the greatest opportunities to serve. 
Arrange it so we have the greatest opportunities to make an impact for you in the world. Arrange it so as we go about our daily affairs, we are met with one opportunity after another after another to lift up the name of Jesus. Not arrange it so that we have the highest places of honor. Their thinking is wrong-headed. Their thinking is worldly. Jesus kept using the terminology kingdom when I come into my kingdom. And perhaps it was, it was them centering on the word kingdom that got them off on the wrong way of thinking in the first place. Because human kingdoms are set up the way that they describe. Human kingdoms are about places of honor. Human kingdoms are about places where others serve us instead of us uh, serving them. So maybe they just keyed in on the word kingdom and, and, and they allowed themselves to run in their imaginations as to what a kingdom actually looked like. But whatever the case, they were at the wrong conclusion. And it was based upon nothing more than them wanting self-adulation and the adulation of others. When we come into the house of the Lord, why are we here? I'm not asking you to respond. I'm asking you to think about it. Why are we here? Are we here for the adulation of others? Do we sing so that others can say, wow, they sang beautifully? Or do we sing because we want to worship the Lord through song? Do we preach? I, I talked about y'all enough, so I'll, I'll, I'll turn it back on, because you're sitting there saying, what about you, what about you? So, 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 so I, I'll, I'll turn. Do, do we preach for the adulation of people? Or do we preach to lift up the name of Jesus? Do we preach to encourage? Do we preach to convict? Do we preach to challenge? Or do we preach so that somebody would say, man, you sure preached today. I have a list in my, in, in my phone of about 80, 85 preachers. And every Saturday night, I send a text message out to my fellow preachers, encouraging them to remember why they preach. If they're not preaching for any other reason except to lift up the name of Jesus. Don't get caught up in you. Don't get caught up in what, in what folks say about you. Because the same folk who said this about you this Sunday, We'll be saying something else next Sunday, Monday. <laughs> I, I, I simply, and, and, and I, have to, I have to say, I didn't start it. Someone did that for me at a time when I really needed it to be done. And I thought that it was so important that I started doing it with others. And I try not to miss. Very rarely do I miss. But every Saturday night, I, I simply send out a message saying, remember, we're lifting up the name of Jesus. 
and I am praying for you. And part of my prayer is that we remember why we are here and that we don't get so caught up in self-adulation or the adulation that comes from others. I am so sick of this armor-bearer foolishness. Well, folk got to do stuff for you. I'm I'm talking talking about preachers. I I ain't talking about none of y'all. And if y'all don't know what an armor bearer is, God bless you. That's good. That's these preachers who got to have folk carry their bags for them. Got to have them get water for them. Got to give them a napkin because they can't reach and get a napkin for themselves. These people who can't do nothing for themselves. It's ridiculous. Show it to me in the scripture. It ain't there. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If I can't put a mint in my mouth without somebody else unwrapping it and giving it to me on a silver platter, then woe is me. It's not about adulation. It's about service. Jesus, we want you to do this for us. We want you to fix it up. We want you to arrange it so that one of us sits on the right and one sits on the left. Jesus says, you ain't got no idea what you're asking. I'll take it a step further. Not only did they not have an idea of what they were asking, they didn't have any idea of how to answer the question that he asked them. He said, are you capable of drinking the cup that I drink and of being baptized with the same baptism that I am about to be plunged into? Now, they answered it almost reflexively. Why not? Of course we can. Sure we can. And Jesus comes back and says, well, come to think of it, you will. But when he says, come to think of it, you will, what he means is a change has to take place first. See, you you will be baptized with my baptism and you will drink from the same cup that I drink, but you ain't ready to do it right now. A, a, A shift in your spiritual development has to first take place. Part of our problem is that we fail to take into account the full measure of what it is that we are here to do. You know, so, some people criticize me. Some of y'all do it. Uh, but, but, I, but I get criticized by, by folk outside about the fact that I place a whole lot of emphasis on time. I don't believe that it takes all day to do anything. Uh, uh, and, and that includes the worship of the Lord. And, 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 and I, I've heard some of y'all say, you can't put a clock on God. No, you can't put a clock on God. And I ain't trying to put a clock on God. But I'm trying to say that as we worship, we ought to worship in a certain manner. And, and, and that worship, we, we, we want to spend all day in worship so that we don't get back out in the world and serve. We want to make ourselves feel good in here, but we don't want to serve once we leave here. 
Do you know that a 60-minute worship in here? Let, let me ask you this question. When you go to the gas station, how long do you stay there? It ain't a trick question. It's a simple question. You stay there till you put all the gas in your car that you plan on putting. You fill up your tank. And then you, do, do you just get in the car and say, well, I'm just going, I love being at the gas station so long, so much. I'm just going to stay parked right here at the gas station. Or do you get in your car, turn on the, the, the motor, and go where the gas takes you? This is a filling station. This, this is where you come to get filled up. And you don't need to stay here all day to get filled up. But once you get filled up, it's time for you to go somewhere. As you go, make disciples. As you go, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As you go, teach them to observe all that I have taught you. Why do you want to stay at the filling station so long? Amen. I, I didn't expect y'all to, I, I'm, I'm right and I know I'm right, so I'm just going to go on with that. A shift has to take place. We answer almost reflexively. Yes, Lord, I, I, I can do what you've asked me to do. I, I can serve the way you, you can't serve until you learn what service means. And learning what service means, means actually getting into the business of service. You can't read a book and learn how to serve. You got to actually serve. You got to actually get your hands dirty. You got to actually deal with folk. You know, reading books is a wonderful thing. It, it, it's, it's good training. But at some point, it has to be translated from training into practical application. And for practical application to take place, you got to deal with folk who don't know how to stand at a certain time in worship and how to sit and don't know why. Who don't know the Lord's Prayer and don't care to know. Who don't want to hear about Jesus being a rock in a weary land or a shelter in the time of storm. What they want is for you to help them because I'm hungry and I ain't had nothing to eat. And you scrutinize them. Are you really hungry? If I give you this $3.25, are you actually going to go buy yourself something to eat? Or are you going to do something else with it? Service. I ain't got much voice. I can't yell that. But service means that you have to get out and you got to get dirty. Somebody came here the other day uh, uh, setting up for a wedding Saturday. Uh, there was a wedding here Saturday and they, they had to do something outside in the parking lot. And, and, and on the parking lot, for whatever crazy reason, they left their phone, their cell phone, on the parking lot. 
and, and came in to, to, to set up whatever it was they had to set up. And then they remembered that they left their phone on the parking lot and they went outside and the phone was gone. I wasn't gone but a minute. That's all it took. Now somebody would say, ain't that a shame? On church ground, you can't, you can't leave nothing even on church ground. Don't you know that's the world that we live in? Don't you know that's the world that needs our service? They need our service. They need someone to show them the love of Christ. We have to recognize the real world. I don't know if you think when you come in here that, that you are somehow isolated and insulated from the real world that's all around us. You are not. It is all around us. And, and, and so when we leave this place, we have to leave this place with our spiritual tanks on full, but also with a desire to show the love of Christ to others as we go. Yeah, Lord, we can, we, 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 we can drink from the same cup that you drink, and, and, and we can share in the same baptism that you're baptized with. They didn't know what they were saying. And I want us to be better than that. I want us to know what we're saying. When we say, Jesus, keep me near the cross, there a precious fountain, free to all the healing stream flows from Calvary's mind. That ought to do more than just inspire us internally. That ought to inspire us externally. And stop singing the chorus wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm teaching y'all words now. It's not near the, the chorus is not near the cross. The chorus is in the cross. In the cross. What does that mean? Why, 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 why are you making that point? Because in the cross is different from near the cross. In the cross, in the place of suffering, in the place of service, in the place of humiliation, in the place of persecution, in the place of misunderstanding, in the cross is his glory. It's not be my glory. Read the words, pick it up, get, get, get to him to read it. It's be thy glory, his glory. Ain't no glory for us. The glory is for him. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and give glory to who? To the Father in heaven. These boys want Jesus to collude, that's a nice word for this time, to, to collude with them and arrange for them to have special places of honor so that others might adore them. And Jesus says, that's not the way that my kingdom is established. Jesus says something else, and, and, and I'm, I'm almost done. 
Jesus says something else that's significant. And, and, and I don't quote often from the King James Version, but every now and then the King James Version gets it right. He says, but to sit on my right and to sit on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those that have been prepared for it by my Father. I want you to consider who it is who's talking. Jesus, the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus said, the, the one who said, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus says, to sit on my right and to sit on my left is not mine to give. Now, somebody ought to look at that and say, well, if it ain't for him to give, then who is it to give? Who, who, whose responsibility is it, if not his? Well, he answers the question. My father. My father. Why is that important? Because if he says that I and the Father are one, if we worship God, God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then why is it important that I lift up this fact that Jesus said it is not mine to give? That's not the only place where he says that. There are other places where he says it's not my responsibility. They, when, when he's about to ascend, they say, will you now restore the kingdom? He says, it is not for you to know the seasons that are set by my Father's hand. It's important because Jesus shows himself as one who was submitted to authority. What better example can we have? If Jesus could submit himself to authority, what's your problem? We have a submission problem. I'm going to eat. We, 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 we have a submission problem. We don't want to submit to leadership in the church. We don't want to submit to pastoral leadership. We don't want to submit to leadership of our various ministries. Good, you're getting quiet, you're listening. The usher tries to send you to a seat. You don't want to submit to where the usher tries to send you. We, we, we have a problem submitting. We don't want to sing that song. Why, why, why always got to ask so-and-so to pray? Maybe because so-and-so was here and you weren't. Just a thought. We have a problem with submission to authority. And yet all of us are under authority. In the Baptist church, Pastors are under the authority 
of the membership. Not the authority of the deacon ministry, not the authority of, 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 of some hierarchy that somebody set up. We're under the authority of the members. We, we, are, we are a congregational church. We ain't got no pope, we ain't got no bishops. But the pastor is under the authority of the membership. The membership decides how much authority the pastor has and what the pastor does and does not do. So pastors are under authority. Deacons are under pastoral authority. If you sing in the choir, you're under somebody's authority. If you usher, you're under somebody's authority. If you are deaconess or you teach Sunday school or you do whatever it is you do, you are under somebody's authority. Well, who went and made them balls? <laughs> why I got to listen? And what you're really saying is, why ain't I the balls? That's what you're saying. We're all under authority. And I ain't got no problem being under authority. None at all. Whatever the membership of, of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church decided to call me as their pastor, I pray that they prayed about it. So I am under the authority of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And I ain't got no problem being under Shiloh's authority. But you under authority too. And you need to quit belly aching. You need to quit parking lot meetings and conference calls and shade tree meetings and whispers. And you need to recognize the authority that we are all under which is the other. If Jesus could say, it ain't mine to give because I'm under authority, then what business you got <laughs>